Welcome to Breaking Banks, the number one global fintech radio show and podcast. I'm Brett King. And I'm Jason Henricks. Every week since 2013, we explore the personalities, startups, innovators, and industry players driving disruption in financial services. From incumbents to unicorns, and from cutting-edge technology to the people using it to help create a more innovative, inclusive, and healthy financial future. I'm J.P. Nichols, and this is Breaking Banks. Welcome to Breaking Banks. Uh, This week, we have our good friends from Plaid back on the show. John Pitts, welcome back to the show. Great to be here as always, Brett. So if you've listened to the show before, you know John uh, is the policy lead at Plaid, um, and we are going to get into um, a recent partnership they've done with the uh, Royal Bank of Canada, RBC, how that partnership came about. And so to help us with that, we have uh, Shekhar Puri, uh, the v- Vice President for Digital Components and, and Platforms. Welcome, Shekhar. Oh, pleasure joining, uh, joining you today, Brett, and uh, uh, seeing my friend John. Yeah, digital components. You know, so is that like um, uh, neuromorphic chips, or what is digital components? <laughs> um, it is a bit of an intriguing title, isn't it? Um, well, really, look fundamentally and 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 simply speaking, what uh, what our team does is uh, we explore different patterns and digital capabilities um, that are in the marketplace to uh, to power various different uh, uh, customer journeys across RBC and our. Our various different, uh, uh, you know, services that we offer clients. Yes, um, at least uh, at least we've got rid of the, um, you know, digital and innovation job titles. They've gone away because you know the whole bank should be innovative these days, right? That's the cultural. Uh, position, and obviously we're talking about the Canadian market, um, which is is great because you know we we obviously have a ton of listeners out of Canada. So uh, welcome to to the show. First of all, um, uh, you know who wants to start? How how did this uh, partnership come about? Uh, well, I can kick off a, a little bit of it here uh, because really it, it's a, a classic story of a bank and a uh, data network walk into uh, an industry consortium meeting at the uh, financial data exchange and their eyes, you know, uh, meet across the table. No, uh, you know, <laughs> the the, uh, the the partnership really came about because uh, after Plaid entered the Canadian market in 2018. Um, we were really looking for ways to uh, serve our customers better and ultimately uh, serve the consumer better in terms of giving them access to their financial data. And at the end of the day, uh, good access to financial data means giving the consumer uh, the quality control and security you get from an API. And that's not something that uh, Plaid can do itself. It's something that we need a partnership with the bank. And as we sort of looked around the market and did, in fact, engage uh, with RBC in uh, FDX and also in some other uh, consultation sessions and bodies, uh, we realized we had a partner uh, in the market who thought about the consumer the same way we did. And that ended up being really, to me at least, the foundation of what let us build this deal was that joint recognition that we thought about the consumer the same way, we had the same concerns and cares for our shared customers, and wanted to figure out a way to make data access work better for them. 
Um, at least that's that's how I see the origins of, of the of the story. That that's great, and, and again, you know, very similar um, origins as well here. I mean, just to step back for a moment, you know, from an RBC perspective. You know, one of the, uh, the 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 trends that we've been uh, seeing more and more, uh, and 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 uh, really accelerate uh, over the last little while is clients shifting to more digital banking and digital solutions, um, and uh, and uh, wanting to use those solutions for you know things like budget apps and you know uh, financial tools, leveraging financial management software and and whatnot, and. You know, this was, uh, it's very natural um, in regards to our DNA at RBC to be looking for ways to ensure that we're we're, we're looking at uh, methodologies and new forms of, of, of ways to provide value for our clients. Um, so from an RBC perspective, I mean, one of the things, uh, Brett and John, that we realize is, look, we know our clients want their primary banking relationship with RBC. Uh, but what they also want is to be empowered with the ability to access and use and, and share their financial data with applica- applications um, outside of the bank. And uh, and really, you know, this quest of looking for ways to provide clients this value and this ability to, to share their financial data to power some of these third-party applications naturally led us to, um, to talking and, and, and initiating conversations with Plaid. And as John said, look, we had a lot of conversations with Plaid on, across various different you know, consortiums and forums as well. And we quickly realized that we both shared a lot of common values. We, we both shared you know, the value of, of trust um, with, our, with our customers and we wanted to build off of that. But we also shared strong values in ensuring that there was strong protection and, and security uh, when clients were um, doing this data sharing um, as well. And, uh, and also acknowledge that, look, there's a lot of you know, technology changes and transformations uh, across the industry in regards to you know, data sharing and, and, and various different patterns that are being used. And really that's what, uh, that's what drove the conversation with, uh, with RBC and Plaid. Obviously, I'm a big fan of fintech and bank partnerships because, you know, um, I think the emerging ecosystem makes that a necessity. Um, but one of the things that we've struggled with, with in the past is is really, um, you know, having a marriage of two equals in respect to the, these types of partnerships. But you guys have been doing more fintech partnerships late, lately Shaker. So, um, you know, uh, how would you describe the maturity within RBC now in terms of engaging with organizations like uh, Plaid and how is that different from vendor relationships in the past? Well, well, listen, Brett, you know, in, in regards, to, I've been in my role now for about uh, three plus years and uh, we've always had uh, great relationships with uh, with vendors or, or third party suppliers of solutions with Plaid. Um, just from a partnership perspective, and I think uh, this is what really made it uh, a very successful partnership was the fact that I don't think any of us were really trying to win a negotiation or trying to get a you know the best deal for their side. I think you know, and, and I think John, you would you would see it the same way that this was really an an open, honest, intellectual, practical conversation on how do we leverage the collective expertise that we each have in in our in our uh, respective domains and and really take advantage of that approach and put the client at the center of it, right? Um, what is the strongest, you know, version of of um, the point of view that each organization brings? How do we leverage that and really design an experience? 
where a client has a better uh, and a safer way, a better user experience, more control over the data that they're sharing in order to, to enable them um, to leverage, uh, you know, uh, uh, broader and more innovative solutions um, that are uh, that are out uh, in the in the uh, in the marketplace as well. So I think, you know, um, Brett, these this particular data access agreement, uh, you know, that we that we have with uh, with Plaid, is really an example, and it's a great example, frankly, of of the industry being able to come together. And uh, and really, you know, building out new standards uh, to create a safer and and more comprehensive uh, solution for for Canadians to uh, to access various different um, you know financial solutions as well. So, I I, I think you know just. Culturally speaking, I think it was just the mindset that uh, that we wanted to do something uh, with the client at the center, and that was the most important thing for us. And Shaker, I, I completely agree, but let me build on that a little bit because I think you're uh, you're underselling uh, one of the things about RBC that that made this work so well, right? It, in those shared values, and Brett made a joke earlier about you know innovation being at part of a bank versus being at the entire bank. And I think our shared commitment and RBC's very obvious commitment to innovation and safe innovation and consumer-focused innovation was part of that alignment in philosophies that made this work. Because the reality is, um, you know, Brett, you know this better than anyone else, there are some institutions that look at change in the world and say, oh, we've got to stop that change, right? And uh, RBC's approach to this has always been, um, we see what our customer wants and it's our job to help them get that safely, right? And get that in a way that is, is well-delivered and delivered with the quality that they expect from the RBC relationship. And I think that was a really fundamental alignment area for Plaid and RBC in helping this happen because uh, we're strong believers in innovation and often the innovation conversation between uh, banks and fintechs can boil down to, well, if a bank says it, the fintech thinks it's wrong. And if the fintech says it, the bank thinks it's wrong. And being able to have, exactly as you said, Shaker, that like that open and honest and, and really principles-based intellectual discussion about how do we do innovation? How do we put the consumer at the center of it? That was the core of this deal. And that was the cultural alignment that was necessary for us to get into an agreement where the consumer is the winner at the end of the day, right? Like there, there is a winner here. The consumer is the winner. Uh, and that's what we both wanted. Well, you know, I can only talk from from my experience, but in those early days when we were doing partnerships with banks as, as moving as a fintech, um, I remember, you know, one partnership we did, it was uh, probably three to four months to get the tech right. And it was like nine to 12 months to get the agreements in place, you know, so um, which is actually not an efficient use of, of fintech time. You know, um, I, I, having said that, Plaid's a very different organisation from Movin in terms of your size and exposure. But on that, um, John, you know, you guys are, um, you know, you're in Europe, you're in North America, obviously, um, you know, both US and Canada. Um, Canada started a little slow when it came to sort of some of the fintech regulation and so forth, but they seem to be, you know, really putting the pedal to the metal right now. But how would you categorize the Canadian market in terms of 
the data side, you know, open banking, that sort of stuff in terms of the progression of, of policy um, in the Canadian market versus elsewhere where Plaid operates? Uh, so uh, I have been made fun of before by talking about how excited I am for what is happening in Canada right now. Um, but I am genuinely excited because the reality is, uh, you know, Plaid has the advantage of being able to see across multiple jurisdictions as people have worked on how to give consumers secure data access. And while Canada did not move as quickly as, say, the UK or the European Union with open banking or PSD2, um, what I see in Canada right now is a made-in-Canada approach uh, that is fit for purpose for the Canadian market, but also has the benefits of you know, seeing what worked and what didn't work in other jurisdictions. Um, so let me let me just give a, a little bit of example to ground that. You know, the UK when they did uh, open banking, to me there were two really big flaws at the core of what they did. It was great that they did it, but there were there were two core flaws. One, the scope of the consumer data right was just uh, current accounts, right? So your payment accounts didn't include savings, doesn't include mortgage. That's not how a consumer thinks about their financial lives. It forecloses a lot of the innovation that's out there to not have that data. And then in some ways, even more importantly for the long term, and, and Brett, one of the reasons I think we make these investments, and I don't view it as a bad investment in time to spend a lot, multiple months talking with a bank to get this right, is we really are talking about infrastructure for the next 50 years here. And so getting it right at the Very beginning clear. is worth that investment for the long term. But the, the other gap in the UK was it was a one-way data flow, right? Banks had to allow their customer data to flow with the permission of a customer to a non-bank, but there was no ability of the consumer or no right of the consumer to share it back with the bank, share fintech data back with the bank if that's what they wanted. And I think there's an opportunity in Canada now to move beyond some of that and really put the consumer at the center of the narrative and say, the consumer wants access to all of their data, wherever it is. And also that means that the best innovation might come out of a bank like RBC, where they can build a great new product that uh, uses this more sort of consumer-focused data portability. Uh, and that's how good competition should work. There should be a level playing field for all players, and the consumer should be at the center. But I think that's where we are right now in Canada, yeah. is a path to this sort of evolution from what's happened in other markets. I think it's also important to acknowledge the fact that you know our starting position in Canada. It, it I see it a, a little bit differently than than other jurisdictions. I mean, we know that there was um, a, a degradation of trust with with consumers and their trust with 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 their banks um, in jurisdictions like the UK as well. I think for Canada, it's a it's it's a different starting position. I think you know customers here um, do trust um, their banks, and and banks have had a long history of of building those relationships. I mean, RBC has been around for 150 years, um, and uh, and so there's a lot of strong foundational elements and and a position of strength that we're coming from. Now, data sharing in Canada has been going on for years, uh, albeit it it does use a, a method that you know we all commonly refer to as screen scraping. But data sharing has been happening here in Canada. So I think we are coming uh, from a position of strength in, in, in regards to some of those foundational trust elements. I think we're coming from a position of strength in regards to, you know, clients' receptivity and appetite 
to want to share data and 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 leverage, uh, you know, uh, third party um, uh, applications as well. And I think, you know, there's something really profound in what John shared that you know this might be not this might be a great example of you know why uh, or an example of you know why uh, why why there isn't a first mover advantage. It, it really does give us the opportunities to learn. Um, you know, from some of the mistakes of the uh, jurisdictions that went ahead of us. And, you know, one of those mistakes I would think is is also around, you know, a common user experience, right? Like you have a, a client that, uh, you know, um, uh, downloads uh, um, various different third-party applications and, and a consistency in regards to what that flow and experience looks like is uh, absolutely critical from, a, from an, a, an adoption perspective as well. So I think that's why those conversations that we had up front to make sure we got it right. We thought, thought through all of these things. We looked at all the different blind spots uh, that we may have and brought in some of uh, you know, our collective knowledge on what happened in other jurisdictions, what made them successful, what didn't, um, I think really sets us up for success here. Yeah, you've talked about control of data and user experience, but you know, can you be specific? What, what does this partnership with Plaid let you do or let your customers do rather that they couldn't previously do? Or what's it going to lead to? Yeah, I, I would, I mean, Britt, the way I would look at it is it's not so much, um, you know, a radical change on what uh, it allows a client to do. I think it's more of a change in regards to how they do it. Um, and, and, and I think what we've worked through with Plaid is, is a method that actually gives clients greater security and greater control um, um, over the data um, that they, they that they share. It gives them easier access to you know select which data bundles they'd like to share. It gives them transparency on how that data is going to be used um, and uh, uh, who it's going to be you know used by, and also gives them the ability uh, from a user experience perspective to modify uh, and it and, and revoke in, in a very simple way. So really, the solution does center around uh, the uh, the client experience. Look, I, you know, I have a, a third party app I download. I'm a client and I select, you know, account A and B uh, as part of, uh, you know, the uh, uh, the data sharing that I want to do. And, you know, in the future, I decide to change my mind and I want to add account C and D as well, or I open a new account. Well, that flow needs to be super easy. Uh, for clients to be able to go there and, 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 like I said, modify and edit, and knowing that all the participants in this ecosystem, so whether it's the data provider, a data access network, uh, a data recipient, that all the participants are following a, a, a common standard where everyone is looking at security, everyone's looking at privacy, um, everyone is looking at monitoring and operational controls, you know, encryption, that they're all following a, a particular standard. And, uh, and, and, and that trust, that level of assurance is absolutely critical for an end user. They need to know um, that, uh, that they can trust this, this, this particular you know, um, uh, flow or mechanism and that all participants are uh, looking out for their best interests when it comes to, again, security and, 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 and privacy as well. And I think that's what's gonna drive even more adoption than what we've seen uh, um, currently or previously. I, I think Shaker is exactly right there uh, in laying it out. Um, and I want to sort of 
refer back to something that he said about the Canadian banking system, because I think it's critically important here, which is how much trust there is in that system and how critical the trust is to extend into this new world. So financial services is always a trust business, right? That's the core of the business uh, in all financial services. But Canada didn't go through the 2008 financial crisis in banking the same way that the US and other jurisdictions did. And we don't want there to be any crisis of confidence as we give consumers these new options and these new third-party opportunities for how to manage their finances. And that means finding ways to appropriately extend the well-earned trust that banks like RBC have established with their customers into this new digital environment. And Shaker's exactly right. What the consumer gets is with that greater trust, control, and confidence, and the control and confidence that allow you to actually build that trust, there's even more opportunity for more consumers to use these services and to build out and personalize their financial experience in the way that works for them. But you can't do any of that without trust. And trust and that's built on the partnership, right? Between everyone who's working to be good stewards of that consumer's data as the consumer moves it through the system. You know, I, I've got a thesis on this um, and I'd be happy to get your comments on this, but um, I think trust has changed significantly be, as a result of technology. Um, and I think, uh, you know, and uh, the reason for this thesis is you, there are certain fintechs or tech fins in this landscape that have at least as much trust when you score it um, as traditional banks. Um, and, and I think that is because utility is starting to become a major factor in trust of brands, um, especially in banking. So, you know, if you think about it this way, if, if um, you know, if a bank in a major bank in the U.S. or Canada, and we've just had um, a credit union in the in the U.S. go for something like three weeks with with their entire digital platform down, right? Um, but let's say J.P. Morgan Chase or um, you know so, someone like them, Wells, you know they they you know they have a ransomware attack or something, and their digital platform is down. You can't use the mobile app. Um, you can't use the point of sale, but you can go into a branch and get cash out right? Um, you can't use an ATM. How long would that brand remain a trusted bank if they can't execute on technology basis? Um, I think I, I, that's why I think that utility is starting to become a very core element of trust. What do you think, John? I think that's right. Although I would put it differently than utility. I would say it is meeting the customer's expectations, right? right? The customer's expectation is that it works and that it works safely and that they have control over it. And that's where trust has always come from is that meeting of customer's expectation, right? If you put money in the bank, the money be, will be there when you ask for it. If you ask for, uh, allow your data to be shared with a third party, you have the power to turn off that data sharing if it's no longer working for you. They're really just extensions of the same basic concept of meeting your customer's expectations. And as those customer expectations have changed, the onus is on companies like Plaid and RBC to find a way to meet the expectations of today and tomorrow as they shift. So, uh, Shaker, I've, I've got a question for you here. Um, you know, you talked about the previous tech around screen scraping and so forth. So what about uh, credentialing um, on this tech? Has, has there been a, a, a change in the way it's worked from 
from, as you say, the previous screen scraping tech to now um, how you've integrated? I mean, yeah, there's a, there's a, there's a fundamental shift in, in regards to the, uh, the, uh, the pattern that we're, we're, we're putting in place here. We're really um, a client uh, no longer needs to provide um, their login credentials and passwords um, to a third party. Um, so basically, I mean, look, the simplified flow in all of this is, you know, client downloads a, uh, uh, you know, a fintech app um, that's, uh, that's powered by, by, by Plaid. Um, you know, and the the fintech app basically says, "Hey, uh, you know, here's our our value proposition." You know, client downloads it and says, "We need your consent to collect, you know, um, information." And uh, client provides their consent, and really, this is where the, the the beauty of the plot solution is: is they they power all of this, and it's a redirect. Um, basically to the um, the FI's property and this is where the FI then you know does the authentication and and this is one of the the strong layers of security in all of this we, we do the authentication and there could be a you know a multi-factor or step up that that happens there and you know uh, a client is then provided you know uh, options on and this is where we collect our consent or our authorization to share and there's a transparency throughout this whole flow right from the uh, you know data receiver side to the plaid properties and the uh, the rbc side here as well and the client selects we 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 do the authorization to share and then it's a redirect back so during that whole process and you know it's overly simplified but it's trying to get the point across here is that um, there is no sharing of uh, of those credentials as well? The client is at the uh, is at the center of all of this. It's a smooth and seamless experience to the client. It's a, a back and forth uh, a handoff that's powered by you know various different tokens that we're using here. But the client is at the at the center of all of this, and uh, they have the access and control on what's shared, and they're a part of the experience throughout. So you guys hold the PII information, but um, you know you can you can share transactional data, obviously. But um, uh, you you talked about the fact that um, you know that there's obviously the elimination of credentials from the traditional method. So do you um, use device signatures, or how are you identifying um, you know a specific customer when they come into the stack? Yeah, look, we have a pretty comprehensive security stack uh, where where we uh, we have various different modes and, and and methodologies of authenticating our clients. Uh, you know, we use a combination of passive and active uh, means to authenticate our clients. It's a pretty breadth, sophisticated stack, and I don't want to veer off too much, but we do a lot of things on you know the way I look at it very simply is we take a, a kind of a threefold methodology. We look at the overarching kind of perimeter um, from a cyber perspective as well, right? Various different threat detection methodologies. We have uh, a layer of security on our front door. And then we obviously have um, security and fraud monitoring while in the container as well. So these are kind of all of the different, you know, security, fraud detection and, and and cyber elements that we have put into place where we have a pretty sophisticated stack um, that is always evolving because the uh, the bad guys are pretty smart and they're pretty sharp as well but uh, we leverage uh, we leverage that and um, and 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 those different uh, uh, methodologies to ensure that there is strong authentication throughout Okay, great. Listen, let's just take a break, guys. And then after that, I'd like to talk about how you operationalize the partnership and what happens next. You're listening to Breaking Banks. I'm Brett King, your host. We'll be right back after these words from our very kind sponsors. 
We're very excited to announce our newest podcast to join the Provoke Media family, The Futurists. Already it's our fastest growing podcast globally, and we've had some phenomenal guests. Kevin J. Anderson, the author in the Dune Universe and creative consultant on the Oscar-winning movie of the same name. Dr. Harry Kluwer, the founder of Beyond Imagination, the creators of the avatar robot known as Beomni. Andrew Hessel, a synthetic biologist, PJ Manny, an ethical futurist, Dr. Roman Yaplonsky, Ross Dawson, and many more. Everything you ever wanted to know about the potential of our future, how futurists think about and explore the future, join Robert Tursek and I as we explore the world of tomorrow and the visionaries working to create it. The Futurist Podcast. We will see you in the future. You're back with us on Breaking Banks. Uh, I'm Brett King. Um, before the break, uh, we were talking with John Pitts and Shakapuri about the uh, RBC and Plaid partnership that is taking place in Canada. So, so what comes next? What happens? You know, g- give us a, a view of what happens over the next 12, 18 months. Well, look, I, I'd say once we uh, we get live with this, the beauty of of, of this partnership um, is that uh, our you know 14, 15 million um, you know clients and, and our digitally active clients will uh, will be able to access. Uh, you know, I think uh, John, you folks are just shy of eight thousand. I think seventy five hundred um, apps uh, in your uh, in your ecosystem, the ecosystem that you folks power. So the beauty of all of this is our clients will now be able to um, um, access, you know, those uh, those particular applications in you know all of the uh, the beneficial ways of of this new pattern, a, a safe, a secure uh, pattern where clients have again access and control to uh, to start to leverage um, um, these applications and that are powered by by their banking data. I think that's part one, uh, Brett. I think part two. Also, is uh, you know some of the strategic conversations that uh, that we're having with with Plaid as well. Look, RBC offers a lot of these applications when it comes to you know budget tools and insights tools and forecasting tools. Call it as financial well. health now, dude. Yeah, 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 yeah. Financial health, you know, lifestyle uh, type uh, type of applications as well. But at the same time, I think we're humble enough to know that there's a lot of great innovation in the broader developer community um, that's taking place as well. And, you know, in some places we're going to compete very much, uh, but in some places it absolutely makes sense to partner um, as well and bring those experiences uh, to our clients more directly um, as well. And I think the partnership with Plaid really enables us to start to explore those areas. Um, I mean, you mentioned them, the home buying experience, right? How do you get on the client's journey uh, to position, you know, some of these innovative products and services um, so that way it's not intrusive. It's very natural uh, for our clients as well. And I think that's the second piece that John and, and, and our team gets really excited about is what is that, those new value pools that we're going to be able to explore. So, John, um, you know, and t- and from Plaid's perspective, um, you know, how are you guys tracking in Canada and, and what else comes into play here or what other news have you got that might be, uh, might come into play? Uh, yeah, well, first of all, I, I would love it if we were at uh, seven to 8,000 customers. Uh, Shaker, thank you for the compliment. We're, we're closer to 6,000 customers, right? But um, uh, it, it's so great that there are going to be 
uh, that every RBC customer is going to have that access to those 6,000. And from my perspective, um, that's just one half of the network, right? Because what really needs to happen is that every customer of every FI should have the ability to safely share their data on a high quality API. And one of the things that uh, that Platt and RBC do together, we're both board members of the uh, Financial Data Exchange, which is building this common uh, API architecture for consumer financial data sh uh, sharing. Um, but that's still a lot of work for each FI to do to sort of interpret within that structure how they should build out their own API. And so Plaid recently launched something called uh, Core Exchange. It's derived from the FDX uh, specification, but it's really a implementation spec, something that is a roadmap for building to that API standard. Um, we think that's a way for every bank, including all of the really great small credit unions in Canada, uh, and the community banks and credit unions in the U.S. to give their customers the same benefit of that secure, non-credential based data access to our 6,000 plus customers. Um, that's what I'm excited about. The future of this really is that network shape model where a consumer anywhere can share their financial data wherever it is safely, securely, and without sharing their logon credentials in order to get a better uh, product or service. And so uh, that to me is the next step from here and continuing to, to work with our friends at RBC to get this implementation right and make sure that, uh, that their customers and our customers are happy with it. It's a nice way to wrap up, but, you know, Shaker, that, that's a good illustration of where fintech partnerships like this bring you differentiated capability that RBC could not necessarily ever match. Like, you you know, getting 6,000 apps onto the RBC ecosystem would be extremely difficult without a, a partnership like Plaid. So, you know, we, we uh, our, our pitch line to banks for, for Movin has always been that you know, fintechs bend space and time. We can do it faster and cheaper just because, you know, we don't have the other organizational constraints, policy, legacy, software, all of those sort of things, um, legacy systems. You know, that's that's what enables us to to do the technology and implement rapidly. So that's another part of it. But um, great hey to now, have Brad, you guys did you just Did you just call policy an organizational constraint? You and I might need to take that outside, buddy. <laughs> Bank, <laughs> policy. Bank policy. I know, I know, I'm joking. But, yeah. Well, it's a driver of innovation in, in some cases as well. But, um, you know, like, let's just talk about wet signatures. How You know, who 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 drove the change on, um, you know, eliminating wet signatures? You know, it wasn't, I, I don't think it was banks. I think that was largely fintechs. But we could have this debate, John. We certainly could. But Maybe, maybe next doing. time, Brett, right? Yeah. Um, uh, where can people find out more about what you guys are doing in terms of the partnership? Apart from listening to the show, yeah, well, look, I, I think there's been uh, uh, several releases that we've uh, we've done in the uh, in the media as well. And uh, you know, Brett, what I can do after the call is uh, I can leave you with uh, some of our details to our our, our PR department as well. Um, my uh, my colleague Rob um, is a, is a great place where if folks want to reach out and learn a little bit more, he can get uh, folks in touch with the right people in the business. Um, that okay. could be me. Uh, that could be a member of my team as well. This is something that uh, we're very happy to talk about. And you are you on LinkedIn or? 
Twitter? Or? I am. I am. I am on okay, LinkedIn. Okay, good. Well, that's one way they can they can reach out to you too. So, John um, and Shaker, thanks for joining us on Breaking Banks today and all the best with the uh, ongoing development of the partnership between RBC and Blood. Yeah, it's very Excellent. exciting. Thank you very much. Yeah, thanks, Brett. Fantastic. All right. Let's, uh, let's move on to what's next. Hello, listeners. I'm Brett King, the host of Breaking Banks. Together, myself and Dr. Richard Petty have recently released our latest best-selling book, The Rise of Techno-Socialism. We look at how inequality, artificial intelligence, and climate change are going to shape our world moving forward. During the pandemic, the wealth of the world's billionaires ballooned. The richest 1% added $1.6 trillion to their wealth, meaning that they own more wealth than the bottom 90% of Americans today. Unemployment skyrocketed during the pandemic, but artificial intelligence could disrupt up to 80% of the jobs today. These new industries we are creating will face labor shortages because we aren't training our students with the right skills. By 2050, we'll need to produce 70% more food to feed the 9 billion inhabitants of the planet. But we lost 40% of our farmland to erosion and pollution in the last 50 years. By 2050, 570 global cities face inundation from sea rise. Miami, Guangzhou, New York, Calcutta and Shanghai are just the top five cities. If you want to know more about the solutions to these problems, check out The Rise of Techno-Socialism, our latest best-selling book. You can get it on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or go to riseoftechnosocialism.com to find out more. Welcome to the future. Innovate showcases cutting-edge banking and financial technology through a global conference series featuring short-form demos and thought leadership. Now, the conversation continues on the Finnovate podcast. Hey, everybody, and welcome to the Finnovate podcast. Joining me today, we have Tiffany Montez, Principal Analyst of Insider Intelligence. Tiffany, thank you so much for joining me today. Yeah, thank you. It was great to see you in the spring, and thank you for inviting me to be a guest on the show today. Yeah, no, I wanted to follow up on the conversation that we kind of started at Finnovate Spring, but before we jump into that piece, can you start by just giving us some background on yourself and where you're coming from in the industry? Yeah, absolutely. So um, I am a principal analyst at Insider Intelligence leading our banking vertical. For those of you that aren't familiar with who Insider Intelligence is, we are a trusted resource for digital transformation intelligence. And so really our team has deep experience um, that allows us to deliver relevant and timely analysis across four key coverage areas. And those areas are financial services, marketing and advertising, telecom and technology, and digital health. Um, I've been with Insider Intelligence close to a year. Before that, I was a strategic advisor at IT Navarca, covering really anything related to digital experience. And then before my time at uh, IT Navarca, I was the head of operations at Terrafina, um, helping customers, our clients launch account opening solutions. And then before my time at Terrafina, I was an analyst at Forrester Research for a few years, again, covering a variety of topics that fall under the digital banking umbrella. And then before my time at Forrester, I was with Wells Fargo for 20 years. I won't bore you with all the details of what I did there, um, but I'll focus on you know, the last 10 or so years of, of um, my time there 
And that was really helping them build digital experiences for various product groups within that organization. No, that's excellent. I mean, I think the experience that you've got, the number of different viewpoints and angles uh, are really something that is very unique. And I think we got a little bit of that when you joined us at Finnovate Spring back there in San Francisco. Um, and, and there were two sessions that we had you talking about there. And thanks for, for your help with both of them. The first one was kind of about financial wellness and inclusion. And then the second one, you were on a panel talking about how banks can deliver on an outstanding customer experience. And I think given kind of what you just shared about your background, it's easy to see where both of those or how both of those topics became something that uh, you, you're very comfortable speaking on. What I want to talk about is something maybe even a little bit higher level than both of those. And that's just sort of this general concept of customer happiness. You know, how do we keep customers happy? I, I think this is a question which sounds really simple, but is actually really complicated. And um, so, so let's go ahead and break it down a little bit, because I think all these elements will play a factor there. Uh, let, let's start by just this kind of relatively simple question. What do you think are the key ingredients banks need to deliver to make their customers, quote unquote, happy? Yes, I think I'd start with really with three things. Um the first, which in my mind is the most important, is really about consumer trust. And so how do you safeguard consumer trust? We know that digital uh, trust is the confidence that consumers place in their bank's digital channels. And they have really a prime opportunity to build this up as a commodity. So we know over the last year, the largest U.S. banks have come to aid in a time of pandemic-related crisis. And customers have repaid that flexibility with greater trust in their primary financial institutions. And so really banks should um, look to position that strength to deepen customer relationships as, you know, the U.S. has, we'll call it return to normal, but also uh, as we start to enter potentially a recession, um, safeguarding that trust becomes really important. I think the second thing really is about giving consumers the, the digital features or the experiences that we demand the most. And so when we think about experiences, you know, we know today that a, a mobile experience is critical for financial institutions, given their heavy reliance on the channel. So based on some research that we did towards the end of the year, we know that 87% of consumers in the United States um, that we surveyed said that mobile is their primary way to access um, their checking accounts. So really making uh, mobile, the most impactful channel in a customer's banking relationship. So, you know, really oftentimes financial institutions think that the more features that you have equals a better experience. And what we know from our research is, is not about more features. It's about the sophistication of this feature. Does the feature provide unique customer value? So really focusing on the things that consumers want the most. The third thing um, I would say is really focusing on building empowering. Uh, financial experiences. And so in, you know, the May of this year, we know that the cost of living increased to its highest rate in more than 40 years, really eroding consumers' personal savings. And so according to the U.S. Department of Commerce, the personal savings rate, um, so personal savings as a percentage of disposable income, dropped to 5.2% in April. And that's the lowest it's been since October of 2019. And so we expect that financial institutions, in, you know, in this type of environment will start to lean much more heavily in delivering personal financial management tools. And we've seen, you know, firms like Bank of America uh, report that their digital financial wellness experiences through LifePan plan has 
surpassed 6 million people as of 2000, or sorry, February of 2022. So we expect that banks um, will continue to build out money management insights um, and making them increasingly more predictive and, and actionable. And what I mean by predictive and ag- actionable, really in its simplest terms, is how do you move a customer, how do you move from making a customer aware of their finances um, and be able to start to use uh, different features to begin to surface financial insight? And through that financial insight, how do you help consumers um, understand how their impact, their financial impact, excuse me, their financial behavior um, impacts their ability to meet their goal and then be able to deliver actionable advice that aligns with that? No, that's really interesting. I mean, that's a pretty comprehensive answer right there. And there are a couple different pieces that you touched on that we'll want to engage with. I think one of the big ones, obviously, is these kind of external factors that are coming in, you know, the cost of living increase, the idea that we're coming into a recession. Um, obviously, these are things which make consumers unhappy with their finances. We're in a moment right now where there are a lot of people, maybe more people than we've seen in quite some time, who are really in a, a position where they're kind of hurting a little bit, where maybe coming in and checking their bank account is not something which brings them joy. Um and, and obviously, there's only so much that from a tech standpoint, uh, we can do to alleviate that. But at the same time, there are things that, that the industry can do to kind of help people still maintain a positive relationship with their organization, which you kind of talked about. I think trust is obviously a really crucial one. Um, let's talk about UX a little bit more, because I think it's clearly you know safe to say UX is really important in this area. Um, but I think a lot of times we think of it about from the standpoint of the elimination of pain points instead of something that, you know, quote unquote, surprises and delights to take a page out of the Starbucks employee manual that I read somewhere around 15 years ago. Um, How far do you think a good UX can take you uh, in this quest? I think a good UX can take you a long way. Um, But when I think of UX, you know, I, I think about it under a couple of different core principles in my mind that, you know, I think when we think about UX, oftentimes we look at it under the context of how you use technology. But to me, it's really more about the overarching experience, overarching experience that that you build with your customer and how they interact with you. And so when you think about an overarching experience, uh, technology aside, what that really means is that you're demonstrating that you know who customers are, that you understand them, that you keep their best interest and society's best interest in mind, and that you're here to help them um, meet any of their financial goals. And so it's about doing all of those things, but it's also about proving all of those things to them in every interaction, every day. And so when we start to break that down, it really, you know, for most financial institutions, will mean that they have to break their digital um, legacy mindset. So oftentimes UX is viewed in the context of taking technology. And unfortunately, a lot of times that means taking that technology and replicating the same process that exists somewhere else. But really a a good UX is about getting down to understanding what a customer needs, um, the best and easiest way to deliver um, all of that using the principles that I mentioned earlier and delivering on that experience in a transparent way. And so if I give an example of sort of legacy mindset and conversations that I've had with clients over the years and them having trouble sort of breaking that mold of doing things the same way that they've always done that, you know, I'll give an example of, you know, when conversational banking um, started to take off, 
and starting to talk to clients about the different use cases um, involved with that. You know, I, I recall having a conversation with a client where they wanted to use conversational banking in the application process, or, or like we'll call it the um, the product discovery phase. And so the conversation was like, how do you use a chatbot to answer product-related questions and then drive them to the best product? And as we had those conversations, it became pretty clear to me that they were taking conversational banking and sort of using it in the front-loaded part of the process. But at a certain point, they started to pivot and just replicate everything that they were already doing um, in a digital channel, meaning they wanted to use the chatbot to converse and ask questions about products. But then at the end, they wanted to send them to a product selector so that they could answer those same exact questions that they just answered in the chatbot. And so, you know, really a good UX, um, you know, outside of the principles that I outlined earlier, really becomes about how do you look at the same interactions that you've had with consumers in channels in the past and completely reinventing those in a way that make it seamless, easier to use, um, actionable, and clearly demonstrate that the journey that you're taking consumers down is the right journey for them. Yeah, and I love the idea of kind of expanding what we consider UX because it really is this holistic day in, day out experience, not sort of a snapshot, not a one moment in time. I came into the app one time and did this thing and it was really pretty, which can be very important. Of course, you want the app to be pretty, obviously, but it's really much more than that. It's about creating this deeper experience so that people have a good experience every time they come in. And, and I think your point also about making sure that we're actually looking at this, what can we bring to them that we couldn't do before, rather than just kind of taking what we've been doing, turning it digital and saying, hey, it's a brand new UX is, uh, you know, I think that's that's good as a first step, but it's clearly not where you need to be by the end. Let's let's move on to the kind of second side of it, which um, was looking at, you know, guiding customers to long-term financial health. Obviously, that's a really difficult one. There's only so much that we can do we don't have control over our users' behaviors in a way that can help them you know, ensure long-term financial stability. There's obviously external factors at play, um, but uh, I think this is one of those areas where clearly the banks that are able to create this kind of relationship and show that they're invested in their own customers' long-term financial health is really important. So um, I think you know this is where we kind of start talking about what is customer satisfaction or versus happiness. Um, maybe the sometimes the customers who are the most financially secure sometimes seem the least quote unquote happy, which is maybe <laughs> one of those interesting dynamics. Um, but what's what's your take on on this? You know, and, and how customer or how banks should be thinking about their customers' financial health versus their quote unquote happiness. Sometimes doing the right thing here doesn't make you happy. Very true. Um, you know, I would say that I view customer happiness and even satisfaction under the context of trust. And I talked a little bit about this earlier, but when we start thinking about digital, and one of the things I shared is that mobile clearly is the primary channel where consumers interact um, with the banks the most. When it comes to trust, it's really about how you deliver on, you know, I would call it six key factors that influence a consumer, consumer's trust of a financial institution. And so when I think about this different factors that come into play around trusts that drive satisfaction or happiness, as we talked about earlier, it's about security. It's about privacy, the reputation of a financial institution, how reliable they are, how easy it is to use their digital uh, banking capabilities, and their feature breadth. 
And so one of the things that we do every year is um, we do a survey on banking digital trust. And we go out and survey a little over um, 2,000 U.S. consumers to determine how banks, how they perceive um, a bank's digital trustworthiness. And we really look at the top 10 uh, U.S. banks across those six different dimensions. And so one of the things that we found in this particular study is that digital trust really is essential to retaining customers and boosting revenues. And so you know, while also giving banks an advantage over their non-bank rivals. So our survey shows that U.S. digital banking users with higher than average levels of digital trust are more satisfied and engaged with their bank. And as a result of that, they're more likely to open up their next account or product um, with their current bank than the any other, you know, digital banking users with below level trust. Um we also know in this period of time that there are threats to retaining that type of trust and that incumbents are competing with heavy or tech savvy, deep pocket rivals, um, you know, such as neobanks, big techs, or even uh, retail brands on digital experiences. And that there's a surge in new banking users has increased the potential for things like cybercrime, uh, breaches, and even PR disasters in some respect. So we know right now that banks must work really hard um, to be able to keep that trust advantage by defining some of the key areas across those six pillars that I mentioned earlier to improve trust. And if I were to share just kind of sort of the tidbits of that study and, and of the six categories that I mentioned earlier, which ones are the most important? Security really was the top factor uh, for determining trust. And that, you know, the lingering effects of pandemic-related fraud um, has only escalated concerns. We also know that privacy was the second most crucial factor in determining press, uh, trust in digital banking. And it will become the most important factor in the face of third-party uh, cookie death and even tighter regula uh, regulation. And then the third one that I'll mention, um, again, in, in order, is that um, reputation uh, affects digital trust in banking. So banks really need to find ways to cement improved customer sediment. And really, as um, you know, we enter, again, an environment where consumers are going to face financial hardship in some cases. You know, how do you maintain your reputation by demonstrating that you're doing not only what's right for, for your customers, but what's right for society? Yeah, no, that's that's a lot to unpack there. And I'm afraid we're kind of running out of time a little bit here. Um, and I want to just quickly get to sort of the, the last couple of questions here for the final two or three minutes, um, which really talk about kind of bringing this back into the real world. The reason we're talking about this, of course, happy customers are much more likely to stay customers and much more likely to you know, build this long-term relationship. So um, really quickly, what would you say are the things that banks really need to be doing right now that maybe they didn't have to do even five years ago as a result of sort of this you know, economic uncertainty that we're facing at the moment? I think um, the biggest thing that financial institutions are going to have to do right now is to really break the mold and to find new products, services, and even experiences that consumers need the most. And to do that, it's going to be really important for them to keep an eye on competition. And we know that competition now increasingly includes, you know, competitors like big tech and even retail brands. And so really to look at the experience they deliver and where they might be embedding products and services. 
So, you know, given everything that's going on in the financial services ecosystem, it's going to be really important for financial institutions over the next few years to really understand how they're going to play in emerging touch points like embedded finance, uh, super apps, and even the metaverse. How about from the other side? How about from the fintech innovator side? What opportunities do you see for that group? Gosh, um, you know, I think the the fintechs are have, have a, robe, a, a rough road ahead. Um, we know that they've been a casualty of 2025, and that largely has to do with uh, funding drying up. And you know, as a result of that, many of the fintechs seeing their evaluations um, fall. So some of them have, uh, you know, been cut in half and worse. And we know that three most prominent players in the space, neobanks, uh, buy now, pay later, and even crypto firms are the ones that are probably sur- sur- suffering the most. Um, I, what I would say to them is, you know, really at this point, it's, it's good to be grounded um, in reality and to make sure that you really understand and that you recast what you think that your growth looks like. The second thing that I would say is, you know, really to carefully assess competition. Um, so, you know, competition isn't just other fintechs. Competition is also incumbent banks, um, neobanks, big techs, and retailers, as I mentioned earlier. And so it's really going to be about making sure that you are using the funding that you do have um, to make investments that create unique customer value. Yeah, and no, I think really you, you kind of hit the nail on the head there where clearly there's a moment where there's a lot of uncertainty. There's a lot of competitors coming into the space. It's time for you know everybody to just sort of be maybe a little bit more cautious, be aware of all the different threats that are coming in, but at the same time, recognizing that there are a lot of opportunities here to come and do things which you know, can really make customers' lives better. And I think you know, this is one of the challenges that we have. Again, there is only so much that fintech can really do, but at the same time, those banks that excel here, those banks that keep the customer at the forefront um, and really give people the experience that they want, not just from this is a pleasant experience that I enjoy, but long term, this is an experience which is going to bring me to financial health. I think it's going to be a very competitive space, but there will be some winners who come out of it. So mm-hmm. um, there's, there's obviously a lot more we could talk about, but I'm afraid we have to end it here. I really do appreciate you taking the time to talk through such a nebulous topic with me. Uh, it's been a pleasure, Tiffany. Yes, it's been a pleasure. Thank you again uh, for inviting me to participate in the conversation today. That's it for another week of the world's number one fintech podcast and radio show, Breaking Banks. This episode was produced by our US-based production team, including producer Lisbeth Severins, audio engineer Kevin Hersham, with social media support from Carlo Navarra and Sylvie Johnson. If you like this episode, don't forget to tweet it out or post it on your favorite social media or leave us a five-star review on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Facebook, or wherever it is that you listen to our show. Those actions help other people find our podcast, and in return, that helps us build an audience that can be supported by sponsorship so we can continue to provide you with our award-winning content every week. Thanks again for joining us. We'll see you on Breaking Banks next week.